This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host for today's episode, Christopher Rose, with the Institute for Historical Studies here at the University of Texas at Austin. Conversion therapy, the attempt to change one's sexual orientation through psychological or therapeutic practice, has now been banned in 17 American states and the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, three Canadian provinces, one state in Australia, and several nations in Latin America, Europe, and Asia. My guest today in the studio, however, is not interested in the validity of conversion therapy as a medical practice so much as he's interested in it as a particular product of a moment in American cultural history. Christopher Babbitts is Andrew Mellon Engaged Scholar Initiative Fellow here at the University of Texas at Austin, a postdoctoral position, and he recently defended his doctoral dissertation on the history of conversion therapy in America. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Chris. So, uh, as I mentioned in, in my intro, uh, you look at, at conversion therapy as uh, something that's really important for a certain segment of American cultural history. Um, what moment are we talking about? What's going on? And, and how does this um, idea become important to a certain subset of people? Yeah, I really began the dissertation in 1940, even though there's a period of conversion therapy history before that. Uh, and it started in 1940 because there are uh, psychoanalysts and psychiatrists who start to really uh, think about the ways in which they can, uh, quote unquote, cure homosexuality from their patients. And around 1940 is when this practice starts to get a sizable patient population. Uh, and that patient population oftentimes is uh, conservative on issues of gender and sexuality in the family, being that they believe in oftentimes a strong patriarchal father, a mom who should stay at home, and raising children to perform what we would say is traditional gender roles. So it's 1940, just before the war. Um, is this related to uh, what today we would call the religious right, or is that where it comes from? Well, there are definitely religious elements to it uh, preceding what we would call the religious right, which really emerges in the 1970s as a cultural and political force. But even in 1940, you can start to see the religious influence that people feel when they want to pursue conversion therapy on their own. Oftentimes, you'll have interviews with patients and case studies and things like that where people are identifying religious elements of their life that are important for pursuing and seeking out therapies. So these are people who feel as though their personal belief system are incompatible with um, what they've come to understand as their uh, their sexual orientation. Exactly. And you see references to the, uh, parts of the Bible like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, put that part of Genesis that uh, says that, uh, the, you know, we had this uh, ancient city that was smited because of rampant homosexuality, although there are multiple interpretations of that story itself. So, as I mentioned, it's 1940. It's right before World War II. Um how did the war and uh, and its aftermath uh, impact this uh, idea that this is something that people wanted to pursue? Uh, the war had a great impact in one marked way, which was 
uh, it elevated the profession of psychiatry and also psychology uh, in an immense form in that psychiatry became its own medical division within the U.S. Army. Uh, you had a bunch of uh, a screening processes for soldiers in which they were checking to see if uh, soldiers, uh, male and women, uh, were uh, homosexual. So there was a screening process. Um, but it was not very intense until towards the end of the war, at which point you had thousands of dismissals. Uh, they were called blue discharges because of the color of the paper in which uh, homosexuals or purported homosexuals were purged uh, from the U.S. military. So I know from the interview I did with Lisa Moore about uh, the sort of post-war era, this was also a time when a number of young men and women uh, sort of came to terms with their sexual orientation and and after the war didn't want to go back to normal life. And this is where you see the, the beginning of flourishings of what would be termed gay ghettos in, for example, San Francisco and New York. Did this create sort of a, a movement against away from the idea that sexual orientation could be changed or should be changed? The creation of of gay subcultures in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York definitely uh, gave a greater acceptance or a, a community in which people could feel a sense of belonging. But one of the more interesting parts of, uh, I think, my research is to show how some people came to what you described as gay ghettos, hoping for personal validation and satisfaction. But those cities, especially in New York, became the early centers of conversion therapy. Uh, it's not the Bible Belt South. It's really New York, uh, New Haven, Boston, Chicago, where there is a large subset of people who have same-sex desires if they're coming from elsewhere, they think that those same-sex desires and their sense of self are going to be satisfied, but they're going to be sometimes disappointed in what they find when they move. And places like New York are the centers of psychoanalytic training. There's a high per capita number of psychiatrists who can treat people. Uh, and there's also a burgeoning community psychology mo movement, a uh, large number of counseling centers. There's lots of different venues for people who are uh, really doubting or confused about their same-sex desires to go and seek treatment. So walk me through a little bit of what this treatment looks like. One of the things that I sort of left out of, of my introductory remarks is that the reason why conversion therapy is being banned is because the general consensus is that uh, it can actually cause more harm to the patient than uh, any benefits that may derive from such therapies. So, um, you know, we're looking at the 1940s, 1950s now in this moment. What, what, what does one do if one thinks one is trying to change their orientation? And this, this is one of the more confusing parts of, of the term conversion therapy, is that it really is an umbrella term for a lot of different things. And it does depend on moment of t uh, in time and oftentimes place as well. In the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, we're talking about traditional ch talk therapy. Uh, not the Freudian sense necessarily that you're on a couch and you never face your analyst, but there is definitely a face-to-face -face oftentimes counseling session with a trained medical professional. These are people with MDs who have done additional 
training in psychiatry. This is an intense amount of schooling that they've received, and oftentimes from the nation's best schools. Uh, these are not kind of country hicks uh, who are only preaching. Mm -hmm. um, but you do have different moments in time where there's different therapeutic interventions. In the late 40s and early 50s, there is uh, there are definitely cases of lobotomies being used. So especially the ice pick variety of peeling back the eyelid and inserting a metal lance into the frontal lobe, uh, which was thought to control a bunch of different impulses. And then also in the 60s and 70s, you have increased records of electroshock therapy, um, and then, obviously, from the 70s on, there's a lot more religious counseling, too. So it does definitely uh, look different based on time and place. But the talk therapy element is consistent throughout. Uh, you have, even within religious counseling, you have a lot of people going to a trained medical professional and also a religious counselor. So I, I guess um, one of the things that, that I should ask for clarification here is um, I think I myself and probably a lot of our listeners are assuming that there was a religious component from the beginning, but that doesn't appear necessarily to have been the case. It's not as obvious as I think a lot of people would think it would be since conversion therapy in the cultural imagination is so tied to the religious right today, uh, who is talking a lot about religious liberty as a protection for it. Um, you don't see it in the same words, but there is always a religious component. And that's, I very much argue that. Uh, and, and a lot of that might be subsumed in different language. So if we go back to the early Cold War, there's oftentimes talk about how the United States is a godly nation against a godless communist, you know, the Soviet Union. And part of upholding the godliness of the United States is raising heterosexual children. And how do you do that if you... Uh, unless if you have uh, your children being uh, modeling modeling proper gender roles for your children and things like that. Uh, and those are assumed to be Christian or emerging uh, idea of Judeo-Christian ideas. So moving forward a little bit, uh, in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association uh, removed homosexuality uh, from its list of mental disorders. Uh does that change the calculus here somewhat? Well, it did and it didn't in a lot of ways. Uh, so homosexuality from the early 50s had been in the American Psychi Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as uh, some form of a mental illness. Uh, by the early 70s, it was a sexual deviance, and it was listed alongside things like pedophilia. Uh, and a bunch of different activists, including Frank Kameny, Barbara Giddings, uh, John Fryer, had protested uh, in some form or another at the annual meetings of the American Psychiatric Association. In 1973, they were able to remove homosexuality per se from that list of sexual uh, deviances. And in its place, almost immediately, became a, a two different uh, diagnostic categories. The first one was ego-dystonic homosexuality. And ego-dystonic just means if you don't feel like you are uh, having an ideal self or you're not realizing your ideal self-image, you can have something changed. And, and it's justifiable to have that be treated. 
So if you uh, suffer from egodystonic homosexuality, you are uncomfortable with your same-sex desires. And that diagnostic category stayed in the, di- uh, in the DSM until 1987. Uh, more importantly, is, is, is another category that kind of takes a, a, a bit of a, a time to, to become part of the DSM and is still in in some form, and that's gender identity disorders. So in your introduction, you talked about sexual orientation changed. A lot of people, when they talk about conversion therapy, have a very expansive understanding of it, too, to include gender identity and gender expression. So in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association includes gender identity disorders in the DSM uh, to address what they see as a problem of uh, young boys and girls, especially not being able to fulfill traditional gender uh, roles. Uh, And they view that as a disorder of some sort. Uh, That still is in the DSM as gender dysphoria. Uh, and a lot of advocates to ban conversion therapy say that it gives justification for what conversion therapists do. Hmm. So with this delisting of some types of homosexuality uh, in the early 1970s, how does this alter the uh, need, the, the sort of cultural need or the social need for conversion therapy and its advocates? Well, its most important element is that it declassifies all forms of homosexuality as a mental illness. So it does recognize that there can be people who are are highly functioning, who have same-sex desires, who are not mentally ill. That that is paradigm shifting in itself. And you do have uh, some of the largest proponents of of especially psychiatric care protest this. You have people like Charles Socarides and Irvin Bieber who remain advocates of, of sexual orientation change therapies till their death, uh, want to challenge the decision to remove homosexuality from the DSM. And what they do is they organize a petition campaign and they collect signatures and they put it up to vote for the whole entire APA membership. And so there is a democratic governance that they exercise on their own, but they ultimately lose the vote by a sizable majority. If it was a presidential election, we would say it was a landslide. Um, it's, uh, it's closer than maybe a landslide uh, in terms, but the APA membership does uphold what was an APA board decision to remove homosexuality, per se, from the list of sexual deviances. Uh, But at the same time, they had initiated this political process. For the next 30, 40 years, you've had pro-conversion therapy people uh, criticizing the vote as the only time in which uh, American Medical Association has used democratic governance to decide what they think should be a scientific issue. We've also alluded to the rise of the religious light right from the late 1960s onward. Um, and of course, we know that coming into the 1980s, there's a resurgence with the rise of the moral majority. Um, does this become a marriage of convenience or one cause being picked up by another? Because there does definitely seem to be a relationship um, or support for conversion therapy among that demographic. Yeah, I mean, there are people like James Dobson, who is a trained psychologist at the University of Southern California, um, who are very much on board with what it looks like to raise 
children the quote-unquote right way in order to be proper young men, proper young women who have heterosexual desires. And he's writing uh, tons of books in the 70s talking about uh, disciplining children in the right way. And there's always a hint of conversion therapy in there. And and it's not necessarily maybe going to a therapist, but it is preventative in that if as long as you raise your kids the right way, they won't be gay. Uh, so that in itself is a very under-examined uh, element of conversion therapy is the child-rearing elements that uh, are oftentimes in self-help books, especially self-help books for parents who might be confused when young Jimmy puts on high heels for the first time kind of thing. Uh, and Dobson is a huge member of the religious right. Uh, he very much uh, takes over for Jerry Falwell, uh, in, especially in the 1990s. But Jerry Falwell, you will see uh, mailers and stuff talking about the evil gay agenda, destroying the American family, and how therapy is ex- extraordinarily important to uh, another person who's part of the religious right is Anita Bryant, mm-hmm. uh, who led a campaign in Miami to overturn anti-discrimination protections for uh, gay men, lesbians, and bisexuals. Uh, and that political campaign successful, as along with a bunch of others around the country. And she has her own ministry. And although she is not very sophisticated with her therapeutic interventions, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, the Pray the Gay Away label comes from somebody like Anita Bryant who doesn't think that you need to know much psychology because God will just intervene. Uh, she is very, very prominent uh, within this movement and, and raises the public profile of maybe the pastoral counselor religious side uh, to a greater height that would not have been there without her assistance. I want to ask about... Um how you were able to do your research on this topic? Well, that's that's an interesting question. And in a lot of ways, it involved lots of archival research. And I think it would be surprising to most people where my first grant, external grant, came from. It was actually the Southern Baptist Commission was the first outside organization that gave me money. And they were the second archive that I went to in Nashville. And they opened up their archives uh, and the Southern Baptists from the 70s into the early 2000s were large proponents of sexual orientation change therapies and gender identity therapies uh, and very much engaged in what we would now call the culture wars, mm-hmm. issuing not only press releases, but in their newsletters talking about the organizations that you could go to in case if you had what they were called unwanted same-sex attractions. And it was really that archival research from uh, especially the Southern Baptists uh, and and a bunch of other organizations that got the later part, uh, especially the religious history part, um, really grounded at first. Um, But... Uh, I knew that it was much more complex than that. I knew that there were some sources that had not been seen before because these are also medical records oftentimes. So Mm -hmm. if we could flash back again, uh, we're talking about those MDs who did all that psychiatric training. Their patient records are protected by federal and oftentimes state law. And so I did have to request certain waivers from families oftentimes, and, and I was able to see uh, handwritten notes and, and case histories that 
uh, archivist told me no one else had had seen. And you met some of the people you write about. I have met some of the people I write about. Um, even before I did archival research, I started going to meetings f- uh, of these therapists. Um, it, the first two years is pretty easy being based in Austin. Uh, they were meeting in Dallas, so I was able to just take a mega bus up and, and stay a couple nights and really talk to them about their worldview and what they had experienced. Uh, and at that early point in time, I didn't know the full scope of where my work would go, but I knew that as somebody who has many more gay and lesbian friends than I have religious right friends, it was really important to be able to discuss what they have experienced in their lifetime and, and get their point of view on things. I know talking to you about this uh, at various points, um, I, I'm not sure I would have been able to maintain the professional neutrality that, that I think you were able to uh, to do. So so kudos to you for that. Um with with the fact that the the practice is now being banned in so many areas, um, some might say that this is an idea whose time has come to be done away with. But uh, it seems to me like they're still quite active, and uh, a number of people who think that that this is uh, something that that people still want and need. Yeah, I I think it definitely is much more active and thriving than most people would recognize, uh, and. It's thriving in places that are large metropolitan areas, and then you know, kind of the the back countries of the the Bible Belt too. Uh, you know, you have uh, practices in places like Fresno and Sacramento and Dallas, and you do have even uh, practices in in Minnesota and Massachusetts, uh, and, and there. Is, is always seemingly a need because conservative Americans, especially conservative religious Americans, are th- throughout the whole entire country. And so it's not necessarily a practice that you can relegate to a part of the country that you're not from in order to exoticize it. So, um, But at the same time, there is this thriving movement in order to ban its use on minors. So the 17 states that have passed laws, all those laws are on minors. Uh, There is a little bit of pushback as to what adults should be able to pursue on their own. My guest today is Christopher Babbitts. You can read some of his writings in the Washington Post and the Advocate magazine. We have links on our website at 15minutehistory.org. Thanks so much for being in the studio with us. Thank you, Chris. This has been another episode, and we'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joan Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta Delomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.